0: Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. I'm super excited as I am every single week as we dive in and feast upon the Word of God this morning. As we continue through our focus this year, which is making disciples, it is important to note that genuine salvation must be never viewed as a get-out-of-jail-free card that we use to help us escape our current situation. Salvation does not magically transport us from a life of heartache and trial to a life of bliss. We are still fallen creatures and we still live in a corrupt world. I sent. I was texting back and forth with a with a gentleman who made a recent decision for Christ this past week, and I share with him a quote that I found in a book I read earlier this week, and it says this: When we become a Christian, God does not promise in Scripture that we will achieve our dreams. He promises first that He will always be with us. He will never abandon us. He will carry us through to complete our salvation. He will use every moment of our lives to make us more like him. And all in all, God will accomplish his purpose for our lives to make us be more like him. The power of the gospel does change lives from a spiritual standpoint. It takes a person that was dead in sin, a person that was dead in their trespasses, completely unable to commune or please God, and it regenerates their spirit so they become new creatures in Christ. Christianity does not equal health, wealth, and prosperity. A lot of preachers preach that. You become a Christian, you give to the church, you will be blessed from a wealth spiritual standpoint, or from a a wealthy financial standpoint. And it's always interesting to me because if you look at the character of Jesus, was he wealthy from an earthly standpoint? No, he didn't even have a place to lay his head at night. And so why would we think that Christianity automatically equals this wealth and this fame and this prosperity gospel that many people preach? It doesn't equal that. It equals the wealth that we receive in Christ. But we're not going to receive that completion until the moment we receive or do we go to heaven. A faith-based Christian upon the belief system of, of positive circumstances is only as strong as their positive circumstances. Genuine salvation is the restored relationship that we have with God all because of the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross. It is only through Christ that we are justified and made righteous before the eyes of God. So this year, as we are focusing on making disciples, my prayer is that not only will we lead people into a genuine relationship with God, but that we ourselves will fall more in love with our Savior savior, and that we would increase in our hatred towards sin. My prayer is that you could look at your spiritual life from January and and when it becomes December of 2020 and see God's grace and how he has grown you to be even uh, more of the type of Christian that he desires. So in order to gain a better understanding of the power of the gospel, many of you know we are dedicating our time this year to the book of Romans... Uh, The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul as this introductory letter to the Church of Rome. Uh, No other apostle had ever been to the Church of Rome. They were one of the very few churches that had started without having any personal apostolic instruction. So Paul wrote this letter to the Romans while he was ministering in Corinth. He had a tremendous desire to personally visit this church. He had heard so many good things of how God was working and changing lives uh, in so many different ways. And so he was encouraged by the people in the church of Rome. He begins his book, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, giving a brief introduction about himself in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And he then he gives a board of thanks and encouragement to the church as he passionately lays out his desire to be with the church and personally minister to them. As we progress through this chapter, beginning in verse 14, Paul lays out the very purpose of living, and that is the one thing that consumes his life, the number one motivation that he gives for this breath of life that he has, and that is in verses 14 to 15. He says, I am a debtor both to the Jews and to, I'm sorry, to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise, so as much as within me is, and this has really uh, shook me since I first uh, really thought about it. Since as much as within me is, I am ready to preach the gospel so to you that are at Rome also. Everything within my power, I'm ready to preach the gospel so that you can hear the good news of our Savior. As a quick way of explanation, Paul defines the sufficiency and the power of the gospel in verses 16 through 17. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So apart from the gospel, we understand that we cannot make genuine disciples of Christ apart from the gospel. It's not possible. So in order for one to become a disciple or a follower of Christ, they must repent of their sinful lifestyle and they must believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and restore their relationship with God. This is the gospel. And so is this ...in mind that we have our theme verse for this year, Romans 1.16... ...for I am not ashamed of the gospel... ...for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. The primary purpose of Paul writing this book of Romans... ...is to present a clear presentation of the gospel... ...and the truths of this gospel of grace... ...and how that impacts us as Christians. And so this whole entire year we are going to be devouring... ...feasting upon this book of Romans... And Paul really starts out of the gate strong with his first focus here. And that is painting the picture of why mankind needs the gospel. And so what he does is he spends from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to Romans chapter 3 verse 20 developing this lengthy theme in which he presents the overwhelming evidence of man's sinfulness. And he does this in order to emphasize how desperately man needs Salvation, And he breaks it up into chunks because, again, he wants to make sure that everybody understands their need for the gospel. And so what he does in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way down to verse 32 of that chapter, is he's writing to the, the, the Gentiles. In other words, he's writing to those that are not Jews, to those that are grossly immoral. That's who his focus, his target audience is within this section. And then he moves on to Romans chapter 2, verses 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. He's presenting God's wrath against the Jews. That is those that are morally unregenerate. Probably even like worse at times than those that know they're not saved and have no desire to be. It's those that think they're saved based upon their morality, but they're still unregenerate. That's who Paul's focusing on in that section. And then he closes out this particular section in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20. And he presents every man's need for salvation, leaving no man exempt from that reality. So in verses 18 through 32, Paul focuses on God displaying his wrath upon the unrighteous. We talked about last week there are several different ways in which God reveals his wrath. First off, you have eternal wrath, which we understand those that do not have a relationship with God, the non-Christians, they spend forever and eternity uh, burning and in hell separated from God. That is God's eternal wrath. And then you have God's eschatological wrath. That is the wrath that speaks of in in Revelation the final day of the Lord in which God uh, pours his wrath upon all of mankind here on the earth. Then you have the cataclysmic wrath. We see that through the flood. We see that through um, fire destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the consequential wrath. You reap what you sow. You lie in the bed and what you make, so to speak. And then you have the wrath of abandonment that is the removing the restraint of God from the people letting them go to their own sin in which they desired to be at in the first place. And so in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 this type of wrath that it is speaking of is this wrath of abandonment. It's displayed to the unrighteous, in other words, those that are genuine followers of Christ, those that are not genuine followers of Christ. And because they are not genuine followers of Christ, they do not have the righteousness of God imputed upon themselves. The recipient of this wrath of abandonment of unrighteous is is the suppression of the truth of God. In verses 19 through 20, God reveals himself through what is known as general revelation. We discussed this last week. This is God revealing his essence of power and his divine nature through his creation. God reveals himself in such a particular way that even those in the darkest, most uh, remotest parts of the jungle are left without excuse. It says it in verse 21. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto a corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Mankind saw God revealed in his divine nature, but they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful for God, and as a result, they became futile in their search for life's biggest questions. Their hearts and their motivations were darkened. They became fools, and they turned the glory of God into an idol. Bottom line, when mankind rejected God... They disrupted God's design, and therefore chaos ensued. We talked about this last week. God's design, original creation, was for mankind to have a relationship with him. But sin forfeited that opportunity uh, through our own power. We understand God sent his son to earth to pay the sacrifice for us, or take the sacrifice for us so that our relationship with God can be restored. But God's original design in his creation is for mankind to have a relationship with him. So this morning we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. So if you could take your Bibles, turn it to that passage here. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. We'll read it here in just a few moments. Within this section of verses, Paul continues his thought regarding the effects of the unrighteous choice to remove God from the picture. In verses 24 through 32, we will observe the consequences of God's wrath of abandonment when mankind fails to recognize who God truly is. So if you, if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word... ...we're going to read a passage that is not typically talked about in churches today. Or if it is, it is oftentimes misconstrued to say something that it really isn't saying. So let's read it together. God's word, Matthew chapter 1 verse 24 down to verse 32. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts... ...to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, and inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Just like any time we talk about sin and the effects of sin, this morning is not going to be a fun topic. It won't be. If a person that's not, that's listening, but they don't have the right heart, the words that we're going to talk about this morning can make them frustrated, angry, and upset. But as I always promise, and by God's grace, as we approach this difficult subject this morning, I will only give you what the Bible says. Because My opinion does not matter. It's what God's word says in light of God's word. I will not give you anything else outside of that. My prayer is that by the end of our service today, you will allow the Word of God to touch your spirit, so that you can be encouraged by the hope that the gospel brings to our world. The title of the message this morning is "God's Wrath on Unrighteousness, Part Two: The Results of God's Wrath." Thank you. you may be seated. Before we jump into this section, I did a lot of study on this, and um, if we're going to approach this topic. The way that God has written it, we have to approach it the way that God has written it. So there's a few things we've got to lay out here. First off, Paul is writing to who? He is writing to, or he's speaking of, I should say, not writing to, he's speaking of unsaved people. The unrighteous people. Specifically those that have made God into an idol. Because God will never abandon those that are genuine followers of God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. As Christians, there will be times where we feel like God is not close. Where we feel like God is not near. But the promise of God has been made that as Christians he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never abandon us. So this passage is not speaking to those that are saved. It's speaking to those or of those that are unsaved. The second thing we have to keep in mind is that the effects of God's abandonment is the result of mankind trying to fulfill their God-given need for all outside of God. Say it again. The effects of God's abandonment is the result of mankind trying to fulfill their God given need for all outside of God. God created man with a sense of awe and wonder in order to draw that person to himself. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created man with a heart longing for eternity, one that only God can satisfy. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says he hath made everything beautiful in his time also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find the work of God that he maketh from the beginning to the end so when man chooses to distort God's revelation then what man is doing is he's taking that longing that God has put in their heart to be awed that only God can truly satisfy and they look for it in other places. Think about the people that are unsaved and how they're running and they go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Man will keep looking for something that will satisfy them and because nothing will ever satisfy man the way that God can, man's lust and thirst to be awed will only become increasingly stronger. The third thing we have to keep in mind here is that the sins that Paul gives does not affect everyone in the same way. Some have certain struggles with uh, sexual addiction. Some have struggles with substance abuse. The point that Paul is making here is that when God turns one over to their sin, their sin takes over, producing some of the most vile and heinous actions. So let's look at the first point that Paul is making here. First off, man becomes a prisoner of his own lust. Look at verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up. This phrase here is used three times within these verses. It's a judicial term when observed within the original Greek context. It is used to describe this process of handing a prisoner over to his sentence. What Paul is conveying through the use of this phrase is that whenever man constantly abandons God, God will abandon man. It shows God taking his hand off the restraint, essentially saying, you want to do life without me? You've got it. Go ahead. Do life without me. This action is the passive wrath of God that is revealed all throughout history. If you were to look at the Old Testament, we see this happen over and over and over again with this nation of Israel. They turn away from God. They push God out of the picture, and God says, fine. He holds his restraint off. They go down their way, and it always ends up in what? Captivity. 2 Chronicles chapter 15 verse 2 says, And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye, uh, me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you, will, while ye be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. The absolute worst thing that man can do is refuse the wisdom of God. What man believes to be the best decision to live life without God only proves to be the worst decision that brings tremendous heartache hold your finger here Proverbs chapter 1 we talked about this on Wednesday night Proverbs chapter 1 I'm going to show how this whole thing goes together here Proverbs chapter 1 we understand that this book or this at least this particular chapter was written by Solomon uh, to his son imparting his wisdom giving the cry for wisdom the importance of gaining this wisdom in order for your life to be successful He, he starts off in verse 20 by talking about how wisdom cries out and those that refuse the wisdom of God, God will allow them to go in the direction in which they truly want to go and that's a life without God. This is what it says. Proverbs chapter one, verse 20, wisdom crieth out, She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of the concourse and the openings of the gate in the city. She uttereth her words, saying, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For uh, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all of my proof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices." So what's going on here is Solomon is talking about how this wisdom, this call of God is being called out and mankind continues to refuse it, continues to reject it. And there will come a point where God says, fine, go do your own thing, but you're going to reap what you sow. And this is specifically what it's talking about here regarding this sin of turning God into an idol. Going back to Romans chapter 1 verse 24, the first result of God's abandonment was this engulfment of man by his own lusts. God says here, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. The term uncleanness is often used to describe decaying matter, much like the contents of a grave. So in essence, what Paul is saying here is that God gave them up to decay, which is achieved through sexual immorality. The intimacy that a husband and a wife share within the realms of marriage is one of God's most beautiful gifts. And his goodness God has designed a way for a husband and a wife to connect in one of the most fulfilling ways. Understanding the beauty and the sacredness of that gift as well as the effects that it has upon the soul of mankind, Satan has used that gift to destroy man. Paul says that when God removes his restraint, man is given over to fulfill these passions of of his heart and which is the gross mishandling of God's most precious gift, the gift of marital intimacy is so sacred that the mishandling of this gift not only shames the heart and it shames the entire body. It goes on in verse 24 and says, He turned them over to their own uncleanness to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Yesterday uh, we had a breakfast with uh, leadership guys there and I heard a story from a man there and... Um, he was near Franklin Street this past week and he shared the story and It it is it wrestled in my mind. It bothered me since I heard it. And he shared the story about how one particular morning he was out and he noticed that uh, there was a, a lady, a college student who was walking out from the guys dorms, the frat houses that were behind um, University uh, Baptist Church. And based upon the time of day and what the woman was wearing she was not just out for a walk. And you could see, the ma- he could see the mascara that had streamed down her face. And he gave the, the indication that the way she looked, the way she carried herself, she made a decision that she regretted. My heart breaks for that lady because there's no telling what that guy did, clearly didn't care about her, only cared about one thing, but as I continue to think about that story and I put it in this passage, the marital intimacy that a husband and wife in this gift that they're designed to share, it is so precious, it is so sacred that when it is abused, it affects us in a far different way than when somebody bursts out of anger. It affects our entire body, it affects our entire soul, which is why God talks about it so often about the purity that he wants his Christian people to keep. The ultimate purpose of our body is to glorify God. Fornication has a far greater effect on a human than any other sin or most other sins that, that, because it's against the body. When we use our body for something that goes against its intended purpose, it affects us deeply. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, it says, Meat's for the belly and the belly's for meat, but God shall destroy both of them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Since that God designed for marital intimacy to be fulfilled only within the realms of marriage between a man and a woman, a person will only find true fulfillment when that gift is used properly. And it can be abused within the realms of marriage, too, might I add. When God delivers man over to his own lust, his hunger for satisfaction spirals out of control. So the more a man gives into his lust, the more dissatisfied and hungry he becomes, which only results in more heartache. As a way of reminder for the reason that God gave them over to fulfill their lust, Paul says in verse 25, it's those that changed the truth of God into a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. The truth of God is the revelation that he reveals through his creation, and the lie that man bought into is the denial of God's existence and his right to be obeyed and glorified. Going back to this idea that God created man with a desire to be awed, in order for man to be drawn to the Savior, man replaced the all and the worship of God with himself. Man served the creature, as Paul says here, rather than the Creator. As a result of this worship, mixed with this sense to be all that is never satisfied, along with the restraint of of, of God being removed, man's sinful choices moves him increasingly further and further from God's original creation, which brings us to our second point here, and that is this. Man distorts his natural affection. Man distorts his natural affection. We understand that God created marital intimacy to be... Uh, In the realms of marriage, obviously, but uh, between a man and a woman. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his image, and the image of God created he, him, male and female. We see this explained in, in a better, more detailed way. I shouldn't say better, but a more detailed way. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 24, it says, And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed upon the flesh inside thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. If we think about it this way, even if a person rejects everything in the Bible and they hold to our Darwinian theory of life, science itself says that a homosexual relationship is not natural. You cannot reproduce through that type of a relationship. It is biologically impossible. And so if you, were to, if you were to have a conversation with someone, and if they were to strictly live by the Darwinian theory that the only reason why we are here is to procreate our genes, they have to come to the conclusion that that type of a relationship, a man and man, woman, woman, does not work. It is not natural. Paul says that as man continues to reject God, then his craving to be awed becomes increasingly stronger. As a result, his sin becomes even more wicked. Your first response may be the sin of homosexuality is wicked. It's a little harsh, don't you think? It's Paul's words, not mine. Paul says here in verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Vile Affections. Paul goes on to say that that type of relationship is not natural. For even women did change the natural use of that which is against nature. And verse 27, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. It's interesting to, to note here why Paul says what he says. He says, for even the women did change the natural use of into that which is against nature. Why would he word it that way? Why would he say it that way? Well, Paul is trying to paint the picture here is that the current culture in which he was writing to had become so messed up, had become so debauched, and had become so uh, 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 gone away that typically the woman, the women, they're the last ones to fall into sin. Because guys are dumb. The ladies are typically the last ones to fall into sin. And so what he says here is that, is that for even the woman did change the natural use of that which is against nature. He's saying that it, because it affected them, that's how far gone this society had gone, pushing God out of the picture. The wrath of abandonment allowed mankind to go so far that even the woman, women were being affected by it. But here's another question. If it is natural for men and women to be heterosexual, then why were some people born... Homosexual. That's oftentimes been brought up to me. And that's a fantastic question. And I want to start off by explaining this. God's original creation did not involve sin. God is not the author of sin. God cannot create sin. It was mankind's, it was it was the choice, the disobedience of mankind breaking the command that God had given that brought sin into the world. And so with that being said. God does not create anyone as a sinner. He doesn't. God would not create anyone that has a sinful nature because that violates the character of who God is. He is not the author of sin. Our sin was passed down to us from Adam. Share that verse last week. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all of sin. So with that being said, sin affects everyone in different ways. Some people struggle with same-sex attraction. That is totally legitimate. Some people struggle with that. It was not God whom created those people as a homosexual, just like God did not create a murderer or an adulterer. This is an effect of Sin. So when God removes his restraint through the wrath of abandonment, the sinful nature of man escalates causing man to be overcome by his sinful nature. So here's another question. Can a Christian be a homosexual and be a Christian at the same time? And I would answer that question by giving this question. Can a person be a Christian and still live an active life of adultery and fornication? Bottom line... If a person proclaims to be a Christian but yet they live a life of unaddressed sin without any conviction or means of correcting that sin, then according to 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, that person is not a genuine follower of Christ. This is what it says. This then is the message which we all have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now on the same note, it is possible for a Christian, I want to be clear about this, to struggle with the temptation of same-sex attraction, just like it's possible for a heterosexual Christian to struggle with the temptation of heterosexual lust. But a genuine Christian will be convicted by their sin. They will yield themselves over to the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify them to be more like Christ. And that sanctification process is different for everyone. You're going to have some people that receive Christ and they're growing really fast right away. Other people receive Christ and it takes a little bit longer for them to grow. But just because we become a Christian does not mean that our sinful nature has been extracted from us. We still have a sinful nature. That will not be the case until we pass away on this earth and go into eternity. Going back to the passage in Romans, I want to be very clear with this. And it's not because I think I myself is better than other churches that do it differently. It's because this is what God's word says. In this section, as well as other passages, God makes it abundantly clear that homosexuality is a sin. And it has no place in the church or in the life of a Christian just like any other sin. But here's a question. As a Christian, how do we respond to those that struggle with or that are homosexuals, first off, we pray for them. I'm looking at people in here that have loved ones in their family that identify with this. I know people, I don't have people far away from me that identify with this. How do we respond as a Christian? Pray for them. Absolutely pray for them. Second of all, we love them. We love them. We don't accept their sin. We don't say it's okay for you to live the, white, the, the, the life that you want to live just as if if, if, if there was somebody in here, a man, I will use as an example, who is having an affair with his wife. I would never accept that because that's sin that is breaking the covenant relationship between you and your spouse. We never accept it as sin, but yet at the same time, we never ridicule or berate them for their sin. Last time I checked, that's never won anybody for Christ. Last time I checked, Christ never did that. He never went up to the adulterous woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. As the Jews brought her before Christ, he never, ever berated her for her sin. First off, she knew it was sin. So why would he tell her? Why would he remind her of her sin? She already knew it was sin. What does Christ do? He says, go and what? Sin no more. He never accepted her sin but he didn't berate her for her sin we pray for them we love them we do not accept their sin but at the same time we don't berate them and ridicule for them for their sin but then we also humbly and lovingly shine the light of Jesus so that they can see this change that's happened in our life it is possible in their life as well Just because we don't struggle with this particular sin does not mean that we're any better than the other person that struggles with this sin. The only difference between us and the unsaved is that we have the grace of God in our life. And we're commanded as Christians is to go out and love people and share. Don't ever back down. You lovingly share the hope of Jesus Christ with those that are lost and that are dying in this world. But as sin continues to progress, as mankind feverishly searches for something to satisfy themselves, this wrath of abandonment eventually leads to a completely and utterly corrupt mind. Which leads us to our point a number three here, our final point this morning. Man's mind becomes completely corrupt. In verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. The word reprobate means debased. In the original Greek, it translates into a word that means not passing this test or not passing the test. The word was often used to describe a useless, worthless metal that was discarded because they contained too much impurity. Within this particular context, Paul is describing a mind that is incapable of moral or ethical discernment. So instead of acting sane, the unrighteous act like people who have gone completely mad, but the worst part about all of this is that they think that they are still thinking clearly. Because God gives them over, they are under complete control of their sinful nature. And then in verses 29 through 31, Paul gives 24 vices that characterizes those who reject God. Every single one of those characteristics describes the choices that are made from those that have decided to remove God from the picture. Whenever God is removed, sin and corruption always take over. But the scariest part about all of this is in verse 32. Look back down to verse 32. Who knowing... The judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do they do the same, but they have pleasure in them that do them. What it's saying here, Paul's addressing the blatant rebellion of those that go against God's design. Paul says that not only do they understand God's commands and his judgments, for those that do not adhere to these commands, they have pleasure in rebelling against God. Talk about the utter rebellion, the utter rejection that mankind does upon God. How are people aware of this judgment? As we talked about last week, human beings are created in God's image, they have a basic conscience. This is understood beyond religious circles. Psychologists, for example, say that there is rarely a person who has no conscience, and those that do not have consciences have a serious personality disorder. Most people instinctively know when they do wrong, but they may not care. They know when they do wrong, but they may not care. Some people will even risk an early death for the freedom to indulge in their desires for now. For some people, part of the fun is rebelling against God. But as Paul says, deep down do they understand that their sin deserves the punishment of death. The ultimate result of abandonment is a society whose mind has been completely corrupted by their choice to reject God and indulge in their own sin. So how can we be encouraged by all of this? As a Christian, we can praise God that we have been saved by the grace of God, that we are new creatures, that in the eyes of God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are looked at as being righteous. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us that is helping us, even in spite of all of our sinful struggles, to be more and more and more like Christ. To those that do not have a relationship, maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've never called upon Christ to be your Savior. How can we have hope through all of this? The gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. The Bible says that what we have to do is we repent and believe that Jesus is our only hope. You can give him your life today. God may be working in your heart. You You can give him your life today.